This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. by surprise because I ate in this restaurant for 20 plus years and I like everybody and anybody else never gave it more thorough assessment and so what happened was I found out the hard way that they're not they were not an innocent group of people which is what I thought they were. approximately three plus years ago my wife joined I was never a member of this group and she got sucked into it and she tried to bring my son into it and I stopped that and he did me and from then until now, it's been a three-year odyssey of understanding who these people are and what they do. There's very many levels to who and what the 12 tribes are. So Gene Spriggs is the leader. He's the guy in charge. It's a cult. All comes after him. One down from him is Eddie Wiseman. His wife is Gene Swanko. She's a lawyer. And they run the whole thing. Below that is what's called the Apostolic Order which are, these are the, the big cheeses of the 12 tribes. Then you have the, the tribal head for that region. Then you've got all the elders for that region. Then you've got the parents. Then you've got the children. Then you have single, single men. So they've got an entire hierarchy where, you know, they claim they live in poverty, but the organization has to be worth half a billion. It's not a joke. It's, uh, it's pretty serious. To me, the line is drawn from the elders on up. The elders on up are the people that are responsible for this flourishing. Below this are good people who mean well, who are really being hurt and victimized, and they don't know it, and they're in denial of it. And if they see or hear me saying this right now, let me tell you, let me tell you exactly what their response is going to be. They can say and do no wrong. They are closer to God than you are. They would say that I'm the big bad wolf trying to demonize them. But the difference is that we have the internet now and there's actually hundreds of ex-members of this club that are organized and are trying to get an organized voice. It's, it's, a, it's a sad thing. I mean, these people are going through a difficult journey and I'm, not, I'm doing my best trying not to judge as, as I go along. As a doctor, my duty is to assess, it's not to judge. Most of the people of Nelson were like me. They didn't know or care to know or have reason to care to know, to look deeper as to who and what the 12 tribes are. In my case, I was forced to. The point is, uh, I'm trying to be a voice for the voiceless, the children, um, the dead children, the living children, the single parent, the single people that are afraid to say or do anything. Most people who leave the cult are victimized. They're all afraid. Um, 
but a lot of people aren't. A lot of people are good, smart people, and they're taking action, and that's why you, there's tons of information out there. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Paul Z. You are listening to The Twelve Tribes, Part 4. In today's episode, we will continue with the history of the group. I am just going to give you a blanket trigger warning here. There are many areas in this episode where we will be referencing child abuse. I will do my best to put warnings before each of these. But if any of this is triggering to you in any way, please skip over this and take care of your mental health. In the last episode, we left off in 1984, where the attorney, Jean Swanko, got Eddie's case dismissed and then left her partner to join the 12 tribes. After this, and during their expansion into other countries, they changed the name again, this time to the Messianic Communities. They did this in an effort to distance themselves from all of the child abuse allegations. But they must have changed it back at some point, as they call themselves the Twelve Tribes to this day. Following the trial, the Island Pond residents kinda stood up for their Twelve Tribe neighbours as they felt that these people, who were now so entrenched in their community and had quite a few businesses around town, were wrongly accused. Outside of Island Pond, however, people had a slightly different view of this community. In Clark's Harbour in Nova Scotia, Canada, people were not happy with this group in their town, and some of the locals threw bricks through the windows of the homes of 12 tribes members, and even refused to service anyone who belonged to the group. Jean moved to France for a while to help set up the community over there, without Marsha. There were, however, rumblings of Jean living with a woman there, who was not only not his wife, but also not part of the group. I just put this in here to highlight the hypocrisy of such leaders where they make their followers do one thing, but then do not follow their own rules. The followers expanded the recruitment from the restaurants. They were sent to Grateful Dead concerts in a van where they would put up a flag with a red cross, kind of like the ones you get on a first aid kit. They would then offer free medical assistance to anyone at these concerts. Now, please keep in mind that none of these so-called volunteers have any medical training and for the most part had not even ever set a foot in a doctor's office, let alone a hospital. But I digress. At these concerts, when people would come to their van, they would speak to these people. When they happened upon a person who may be under the influence of drugs and suss out if they were seeking more meaning in life, they would speak to these people and tried to convince them that the 12 tribes would be able to provide the answers that they were looking for and would tend to all of their spiritual and physical needs. And I don't have to tell you that for the most part, it worked. They also expanded to Bob Dylan concerts. Over the next few years, the group would continue to recruit through their restaurants, at concerts and through the distribution of their pamphlets. Many people would also leave, and those who left spoke out about the physical, emotional, and financial abuses that they had gone through in the group. Then, in 1990, something significant happened. 
If you recall from the last episode, the group did not believe in going to the doctor. Well, Mary Wiseman, wife of Jean's 2IC Eddie, fell quite ill. But as they did not go and seek medical advice, they decided to treat her with prayer and herbs. When her health started deteriorating, the community started holding prayer meetings for her in an effort to make her well again. After one of these very intense meetings, the leaders declared to the community that Mary was healed. Now, I'm not 100% sure if she had seemed to be doing any better, as I could not find any information around this time. But I have heard that some people who are very ill oftentimes have this last burst of feeling well and being clear of mind before they turn for the worse. As you may now have guessed, sadly, Mary passed a few days after this announcement. Why this was such a significant event at the tribes was because during this period, Jean had prophesied that if the group prays hard enough and believes enough, Mary would pull through. As a matter of fact, he had seen her get healed, thus the announcement. Well, you can imagine what this would have looked like to the group when one of Jean's prophecies had not come true. I'm very sure many of the followers must have experienced some form of cognitive dissonance. In an effort to turn the narrative around, the followers who attended Mary's funeral were addressed by Jean around the questions that were arising from Mary's passing. Eddie stood up in front of the entire group and his two sons and told them that around the time that the group was relocating to Island Pond, Mary had started to doubt Jean's teachings. She had told Eddie that she wanted to take her sons and leave Eddie and the twelve tribes. According to him, he managed to convince her to stay. Upon hearing this, the group most likely with some coaxing from Jean, agreed that it was not their fault that Mary passed. In fact, they had been convinced that Mary had passed because she had not fully committed to Jean's teachings. Later on, Jean would even use her story as a warning to others, saying that she had died because she had spoken out against him. And, not surprising to anyone, Eddie and Jean Swanko, remember, his attorney that left her life behind to join the group? Yes, her. Eddie and Jean were married in 1991. She also became the unofficial official legal counsel for the 12 tribes. In 1993, the group made news again when it was alleged that they were harboring fugitives on one of their compounds who were wanted on abduction charges. I know that these were just allegations, but, and this is just my opinion, given what we have learned thus far, I would not be in the least surprised if it was in any way true. In one of my earlier episodes on this group, I spoke about how they would struggle to find family members and even children who were within the group as they were shuffled between various compounds. Well, I think out of pure desperation, and maybe some sort of need for fame, Laurie Johnson, a former member of the Twelve Tribes, went on to none other than the Jerry Springer Show in November of 1994, as her husband, who was still with the group, 
was ignoring a custody ruling in which Laurie was supposed to have custody of their two young sons. And you would never have guessed it, but her parents, who were also still members of the group, were there, in the audience. Eddie Wiseman and Jean Swanko made an appearance as well. Oh, and Rick Ross, from the then still active Cult Awareness Network, he was also there. I must admit that at first I was a little judgmental. I mean, Jerry Springer is not exactly professional journalism. But then I took a step back and thought about how desperate a mother must be if her husband is already wanted by the FBI. And she had not seen her boys in four and a half years. As expected, there was a lot of mudslinging on the show. But what struck me most was how the members of the tribes, both on stage and in the audience, refused to help her. They claimed ignorance as to the whereabouts of Laurie's children, and Jean slung hectic insults at her. This to me was rich coming from a woman who left her partner behind to go to the group. And let's be honest, we all suspect just a tiny bit that Eddie and Jean were more than just friends or lawyer defendant while Mary was still alive. Oh, a few years later, Michael Painter and James Howell, two former leaders in the group, admitted that they had lied and actually did know where the boys were. It also came out during the show that there were two locations in the US, one in California and one in Florida, which was only known to the tribes and which they used to hide people from their families. Now, for a Bible-abiding group, they kind of skip over the part where you must not lie, or in the case of the Ten Commandments, be false witness. But in the group, it depends on the way you lie. So, the members are told that if you withhold the truth from someone who deserves to know it, then you are lying, and that is a sin like withholding anything from the members within the tribe. But when you withhold the truth from the outside world or to people who are seen as interfering with God's work, like the big bad government, then that's not a real lie. Just a quick disclaimer, I will be speaking about the passing of a child, so please skip over the next few seconds if this is in any way triggering to you. In France, in 1997, the death of a 19-month-old boy piqued the interest of local authorities. He was said to have only weighed 10 pounds, or 4.5 kilograms. I looked it up, and the normal weight of a 19-month-old boy should be 24.6 pounds, or 11 kilograms. That means that he weighed less than half of what he should have. It was also found that he was suffering from rickets and had a congenital heart condition. I wasn't sure what rickets disease was, so I found on nhs.uk, rickets is a condition that affects bone development in children. It causes bone pain, poor growth, and soft, weak bones that can lead to bone deformities. Now, as the group in France carried similar beliefs about medical care, this child was never treated. And what I found even more heartbreaking is if they had just diagnosed the rickets, it could have simply been treated with vitamin D and calcium. The French authorities looked into the group 
and when they came across Jean's child training manual, the police and a few doctors went to the compound and all of the children there were examined, but they could not find any further evidence of child abuse in the other children. The little boy's parents, however, were tried in court and convicted. They were made to serve a 12-year sentence for their hand in their son's death. Then, in 2001, a tip-off was received about child labour being used by the group in their factories. Among the many diverse businesses that the 12 tribes owned, a few of them were packaging factories, which would assist big brands with their product packaging. They had quite a few big-name brands, among which was Estee Lauder. Undercover footage was taken of the goings-on at the factory, and it came to light that they were using child labour to fulfil their orders. Not only that, but the children were not even being paid. I don't know why I'm surprised by this, as they hardly pay the adults. When the New York Post reached out to the community and asked them to comment on this, in an April 2001 article, they state that spokeswoman Jean Swanko blasted the controversy as, quote, a lot of smoke and no fire. All these things that they're saying are alleged, said Swanko, who said she has not been contacted by the Labor Department. I believe that the things we do are protected by law, end quote. Later that year, one of Eddie Wiseman's older sons from Mary left the group and spoke out in a newspaper. He told them about a lot of the inner workings of the group and also spilled the beans publicly on Jean's lavish lifestyle. Yes, remember all of that money that I told you guys about way back in the first part of this? Well, someone had to be spending it. Besides having massive homes in Europe, South America and the US, he also only travelled by chauffeur. Yes, again one of those instances where the leader is like, do what I say and not what I do. Jean's followers jumped to his defence. They claimed that there was no way that Jean could be rich because, and get this, he didn't wear any jewellery and didn't drive a car. Uh, yes, because jewellery maketh the man rich, I guess? They also said that the reason that he needed to travel so much was that he needed to spread their teachings. Obviously, Jean had to respond to this and put his own spin on it. He held a big meeting with many of his followers and proclaimed that this was just a smear campaign from the evil mainstream churches. Over the next few years, various news articles were written about the group in all of the countries that they had expanded to. Then, in 2008, two of the longest-serving leaders of the group, James Howell and Michael Painter, quit the group very publicly and gave many interviews to various people. They actually sat together for one of these interviews and told their story. I'm going to put a blanket disclaimer here as they broach various topics which may be triggering for sensitive listeners. If you need to, you can skip over the next minute or so. Their initial impression of Jean was that he came across as sincere in his beliefs and felt much more approachable than other ministers. Later on, he became so controlling 
that he basically managed every single thing that took place in the communities. In the interview, they state that in the group, quote, you don't have your own life. They also spoke about the heartache they feel about losing so many years with their families. Jean ruled with fear, and that kept most people in. They admitted the child abuse allegations. Michael even went as far as telling the reporter that his wife at one point had almost beaten their daughter to death. James added that the same thing had happened to his daughter. Then they said something that gave me pause. Remember that Jean had had a son with wife number two, but had no contact with him? I always wondered what made him capable of inflicting and having his followers inflict such cruel punishment to their children. And then it dawned on me, and again, this is just my opinion, he could probably have done this because it wasn't his own child that this was happening to. A major point that they kept driving home was the absolute devastation that they experienced being in the group and being cut off from everyone in the outside world. James explained to the reporter that some people found it so hard to live up to Jean's rules that they became so despondent and they ended up taking their own lives. This breaks my heart to think that this man had so much influence over people's own self-worth. The two noted how people who came into the group with substantial wealth and status would very quickly climb up the leadership ranks, but if you would at any point disagree with Jean, you would immediately be removed from your role. Most followers did their best to toe the line because their worth in the group was linked to their standing within the leadership of the group. Jean also cultivated a culture of snitching, and we have encountered this in other groups. If you told on someone who broke any of Jean's rules, you would gain favor with him. As I've explained before, leaders of high control groups use this to ensure that the followers basically self-police so that they can have control over the group without having to physically control the group. Now I'm going to add another trigger warning here. I will be speaking about child abuse over the next few minutes, so please skip ahead if this will be triggering for you in any way. Rumours of corporal punishment had begun around the compound of the group in Germany. I looked into the law in Germany around corporal punishment towards children and found the following on ncorporalpunishment.org. Quote, Corporal punishment is prohibited in the home. In 2000, Article 16312 of the Civil Code was amended by the Act to prohibit violence in the upbringing of children to state. Children have the right to a non-violent upbringing. Corporal punishment, psychological injuries and other humiliating measures are prohibited. German child care law was amended to place a duty on authorities to promote ways in which families can resolve conflict without resort to force. Article 16.1 of the Social Welfare Code Book 8 was amended to provide for the promotion of non-violent conflict resolution within families. Family support measures should help to ensure that mothers, fathers and other guardians carry out their parental responsibilities better. 
They should also identify ways in which conflict situations in the family can be resolved without violence. Prosecution may be pursued through the criminal code provisions on offences relating to bodily harm. Should an adult face criminal charges for corporal punishment, they can be sentenced anywhere between 6 months and 10 years. In 2013, a German reporter joined the group undercover and rigged up cameras in various areas within the compound to see if the rumours were in any way true. One of these cameras were hidden over a door in one of the back rooms. When the reporter left, they looked over the footage and they saw a woman entering the room with a child. She then proceeds to spank the child with a thin rod and then leave the room. When this footage was released, the authorities descended on the compound and removed 40 children from the community. Most of the children were placed in foster homes, but some of the younger ones were later reunited with their parents. Only one of the elders stood trial and was given six months probation and a 2,000 euro fine. The group packed up the community and relocated to the Czech Republic. I had a look and it seems like child corporal punishment is not outlawed there, so that may be why they chose to go there. We return to France where in 2015, a young man who had been a member of the group in his childhood had managed to escape and went to the French authorities. He relayed all of his experiences within the group and told them of the beatings he had experienced, sometimes so harshly that he would bleed. The French police raided the community again and removed four children who they had found to have been beaten recently. Now, again, this is just my opinion, but if, as they claim, they only likely spank the children, then in theory there shouldn't be any marks, right? So, if they found evidence, then they must have been hit a lot harder than the elders claim. In 2020, Australian detectives conducted two raids at Peppercorn Farm in Picton and at a 78.5 hectare property near Bigger, southwest of Sydney. They were looking for the bodies of stillborn children. They found three graves at the property near Bigger. In Australia, it is illegal to bury a body without registering the death with the Registry of Births, Deaths and Marriages Council. Permission is also required to bury a body on private property. They had found that at the bigger compound, life was super rough and they didn't even have any running water. It was said that this is where people were sent when they were questioning their beliefs. It is safe to assume that with the lack of proper facilities and medical care, giving birth would be slightly dangerous for both the moms and their babies. It was found that many of these babies died from complications during birth. Scott Sonecki was among some of Jean's followers who he had sent to Australia to start a community there. Scott, who had changed his name to Han, became a leader at one of the compounds. Scott eventually left the group in the late 2000s, early 2010s and granted the Australian news program A Current Affair an interview in January of 2020. Even though he had parted with the group, 
The feeling that I got when I watched the interview was that he may have left the group physically, but that he still had a great affiliation for them. He was even still in contact with them, which is a bit weird since they view people who leave as evil and usually cut off all contact. Scott went on to explain how he helped circumvent the labour laws by saying that every person at the Yellow Deli restaurants in Australia were a manager and they did not get a wage. And because of their religious basis, they were able to not pay tax. He did say in the interview that he wouldn't call it a cult, but would say that it was more like a sect or a high control group. At around 5.45pm on 16 August 2020, a massive fire broke out on the property where Scott was living. Even though emergency services raced to the scene and spent hours getting the fire under control, when the fire was finally extinguished, unfortunately it was found that Scott had perished. He was 64 years old. Upon investigation, it was found that the fire was purposefully lit and a short time later, a 17-year-old boy was arrested and charged for murder improper interference with a corpse and malicious damage by fire. It has been said that this boy may have done it as a form of revenge for the treatment that he had received within the 12 tribes. Albert Eugene Spriggs, known to his followers as Yonick, passed away on 11 January 2021 at the age of 83. It is said that he may have passed due to complications from COVID-19. On his death certificate, it states respiratory arrest and also notes that he had heart disease. We would think that like most of these groups, when the leader passes, the group either splinters or fizzles out, but not in this case. Gene had created such a self-sustaining belief system that they are still going strong even over a year after his death. They even made headlines later in January 2022. If you remember on the news, there were devastating fires in Colorado. Well, it turns out that there was a large unattended fire on one of the 12 tribes' communes in Boulder, Colorado. It is thought that this fire was the cause of the bigger devastating fire that engulfed Marshall. 1,000 homes were lost in this blade. When authorities looked for a cause, they found a tip that had come from a person who drove past the fire at the compound. The police cordoned off the property and commenced their investigation. Sadly, I don't think that will be the last that we hear about this group. I truly hope that in some way they move away from the high control teachings, start paying the employees properly and treat the children better. Maybe then they would live happily on the commune without any emotional, spiritual or physical harm. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. Please also invite your friends and family to listen. If you are listening on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. You can also leave comments. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at 
decodingcults at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that we sent you. This week, I would like to say gracias to my listeners in Spain. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.